361, Chapter 42. Book Talk begins at 1645. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 361, A Fisher of Nets. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. It feels like it's been a million years since I talked to you last. Those of you who were on the Bleak House call on Saturday that worked and was so much fun. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. They got to see thing one and thing two live and in person. And thing two kept trying to insert himself by way of Muppet into the conversation. But thing one actually was able to add a little bit to the conversation because he had just been reading up on spontaneous combustion. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun and we're absolutely going to do this again. But why? I hear you say. But why, Heather, is this episode called A Fisher of Nets? Because my husband, who I love very much, we had gotten these swings back in Arizona. They were hammock swings. They're individual. And the hammock part is like a, a fishnet. You know, it's, a, I mean, like a fishing net, not like fishnet stockings, but like a real net that you would throw out into the ocean because it, it gets very heavy when it gets wet, which is great for stability. But the, the material that this is made out of is a thick cotton yarn. Not too thick, you know, maybe like, I don't know, three, three eighths of an inch thick. And of course, because it's cotton yarn, it's stable. My husband likes tape, lots and lots of tape. And so these you can see where this is going already, can't you? So these these fantastic hammock swing chairs were wrapped around their wooden support. And then tape was wrapped around the net, around the wooden support, which means in order to unwrap these, one would have to cut through, <laughs> you knew it was coming, cut through the layers of tape. Well, we asked our landlord, because we have a fabulous tree out in the backyard, can we hang these? Should I put a rope over the branch or whatever. He comes over with an auger and drills, he's a tree guy, drills holes in the tree, puts up big, big hooks, big hooks into the tree. And I'm unwrapping one of them and we hang it up and I go to unwrap the other. And thank God, before I had a chance to do any real damage, I saw more frayed ends than I could count. And I gasped. And I dropped it on the ground and proceeded to very, very slowly and gently pull the pieces apart 
so that I could try and identify where one strand should have ended and continued on and ran inside and got a lot of safety pins. And because it was relatively thick yarn, it was able to, if not safety pin the pieces together, at least I could safety pin the ends so that they were easily identifiable and probably not going to unravel any more than they already had. As you can imagine, this was devastating. We haven't been able to have these up since we were in Virginia, so that's been three years. And these are, you must know, probably the only place I've ever sat where my back truly feels taken care of. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. And this one's been cut. And so I brought it up here in its safety pin state and figured out that because this room is so weird, I could use one of the crossbeams in the ceiling. There's a actually a hook in it already. And so I hung the poor shredded thing up. And I have been re-netifying the net. I don't know thing one about how these things are made. I have been figuring out as I went along. I have made mistakes. No one will ever know. But I'll tell you, one of the things I figured out was if the cotton yarn is thick enough, and if you have really good quilting thread, and if you have dumpster loads of patience, you can actually sew two pieces together. Now, I, I made some really killer knots early on when I was actually able to join two of the original pieces. But it didn't take long before I figured out that that was not going to work for everything. And so I, I wound up sewing them together. And I'm talking about wrapping and stitching and wrapping and stitching and wrapping and stitching and wrapping and stitching. Oh, and then stitching some more and then wrapping and stitching. And, but it's stable and I can pull on it really hard. And since it's, you know, the weight is distributed over so many strands, I am very hopeful that it's going to work. I'll put a picture of one of these things up in the show. And if I can, if I can read the stamp, there's a, like a wood burn stamp into the wood that says the name of the people who manufactured it. I think they were in Idaho. We, we bought it at a street fair. So it was like a craft fair thing. Anyway, it was heartbreaking. So one of them is up and the boys have been playing in it and I have not gone to sit in the hammock swing yet. I am awaiting my moment of joy and success. And then I'll treat myself by sitting in this thing. So maybe by this weekend, I'll be done. It's been a week. It's been a whole week of re-netting this thing. So not that I'm bitter, you know. Anyway, that's why, that's why I've been making nets instead of knitting or anything else. I finally started to feel like knitting again which I think means maybe I feel like things are settling down finally. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, I have a bunch of stuff to share with you. The first thing is a promo from a voice you may recall. Hello, Craftlit listeners. My name is Big Bad John, and I'm a geek. And I'm calling out to all other geeks in podcast land to tune in to the newest, the dumbest, the greatest gate game show in that electronic cloud of cat pictures and extremist opinions that is the internet. Yep, I've started a game show quiz called The Missing Monkey. So if you know your comics, cartoons, books, film and TV, or just want to laugh at people who don't, then come visit us at www.themissingmonkey.com. If you like it, tell people. 
If you don't like it, pretend you did, and still tell people. Thank you so much for your time, and Heather, it's back to you. Oh, are we still on for croquet on Tuesday? <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad John is doing that. And I, I love listening to his voice, which reminds me, this weekend, this Saturday, we start Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. I have found out so much about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock in general and all of that. It's it's going to be fun. It's not a particularly long book, but I'm very, very, very excited about it. Should be a lot of fun. So that starts this Saturday. The first streaming episode will go out on Saturday at 10, and that's to the premium membership, the streaming only membership. And then when I have uh, three episodes, it'll be the end of September, I will post those episodes bundled together in a zip file on the download-only premium membership site. And then you guys will have an email pop up in your mailbox with a little newsletter telling you, hey, the new audio's here. Bleak House is still on both the streaming feed and in the download-only premium membership site. So that's what's going on there. And just so you know, I have not been able to figure out a way to make subable work with the premium memberships. I think I may have figured out a way to add downloading-only memberships to subable, but I'm not positive. So again, premium audio, completely separate thing from subable. Subable is kind of like a Kickstarter for the rest of my life. It is a way that I can make interesting, fun, funky things for you and make them available to you in a way that both gives you something fun and helps support the show. I got some great emails this week. And I got a really nice voicemail as well. First, the emails. Listener Christina, longtime listener Christina, because I recognize Christina's email address. She wrote in responding to episode 357, the one I recorded after Robin Williams died. And she said, since listening to this episode, I've come across two resources you might find interesting or helpful. First is Andrew Solomon's TED Talk on depression based on both personal experience and research. Plus, she says, he opens with an Emily Dickinson poem. That's always a good sign, right? She also says, second, there's a lengthy Atlantic article on, and the title is Secrets of the Creative Brain. This explores the science behind the general observation of increased prevalence of mood disorders in highly creative people. Warning, this article is information dense. I had to print it out to work through these ideas, but I found it worth the effort. And Christina provided links to both of these things, so I will put these on the show notes for you as well. It's been very interesting, actually. I have gotten, just in the last couple of months, more email from two recent shows than I think I have ever gotten before, ever. And that was the poetry episode and the depression Robin Williams episode. I know I'm not alone, and I know that wrestling is a good verb to put with depression. And one of the comments that I've gotten over and over again is, thank you for making the distinction between being sad 
and being depressed. Two, two different things. Oh, did you see the new Ken Burns documentary on Teddy, Franklin Delano, and Eleanor? It's new. I saw a preview for it on our local PBS station. It looks spectacular. Oh my gosh. I'm like chomping at the bit. You know how we've all heard that Teddy Roosevelt was a, he was a sickly child. He was a weak child. And this is why he became so competitive and blah, blah, blah. Okay. There's a picture of him. He must be 10, 11, 12, 13. And he's outside with his brother and sister. And he's wearing some kind of jersey, you know, like a football shirt or something like that from, I mean, from the 19 teens, but still. And this guy is gorgeous. I mean, gorgeous. Yeah, he's still kind of skinny, but oh my gosh, he's like Gatsby gorgeous. Both Andrew and I gasped when we realized that that's who they were saying was Teddy Roosevelt in the picture. It's going to be really interesting, I think. Plus, you know the music will be good. So that's kind of fun. But back to our emails. So listener Jane wrote actually a little over a week ago. I wasn't able to get it into last week's podcast, but I did get it into this week's because here it is. Writing to me about the whole compartmentalization that I mentioned, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and just how when things are very complicated and fraught and hectic, you wind up kind of having to compartmentalize things. You know, I'm, I can't think about this right now because I will lose my mind. So instead, I'm going to focus on this thing and I'll get back to this soon. And she said, hi, Heather. On one of your recent podcasts, you spoke about compartmentalization. The Daily Good newsletter featured the linked article of webs, boxes, and boundaries a few days ago. I don't know if it will be helpful to you or not. I recently retired from public school teaching So my life is much more balanced these days. Often compartmentalization is portrayed as emotionally unhealthy. However, when I was teaching, there were times when I survived by compartmentalizing school responsibilities. Compartmentalizing helped me arrange my priorities. That's family, home, knitting, writing, teaching, friends, professional growth, church, and more. Perhaps different sources or psychologists with differing orientations view it differently. I am certainly not an expert in this area. I support the idea of working toward wholeness and integrating all aspects of my life. Given the way the workplace of today is designed and electronic connectedness, it may be healthier to find times to disconnect. I may be missing the point here, but I wanted to pass along the article. While the orientation of the daily good is Buddhist, and I am not, I do enjoy their newsletter. The articles remind me of the goodness that continues to exist in people all over the world. I put a link to the article that she sent me to, and she's right, the kind of compartmentalizing that I was doing was to, when I was with family, I could not let myself think about work because I would become ill. (laughs) And likewise, when I was working on work, I couldn't think about family stuff because then I would be ill, thinking about all the time that I should and would rather be spending with them. So it's better this week. So thank you, Jane. The article, the Daily Good website, real nice. I liked it a lot. I think you will too. I have one more listener voicemail to play for you, and then we will move on to North and South. Here you go. Hey, Heather. It's Tammy again. I've been thinking about calling again lately because I saw a comment from someone online somewhere and don't remember where about 
who was saying that they weren't interested in listening to books being read to them because it puts them to sleep or something negative. Um, my experience with it was when we were kids, we didn't own a TV and my mom read everything to us. So I got to hear a lot of the classics read to me by my mother, like Swiss Family Robinson and you know the Little House in the Prairie books and other books like that. Hello again, looking forward to seeing you at Stitches East in just a few weeks, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. North and South. So before we get to today's chapter, there's a couple of things that we need to clear up about previous chapters. And no, it's not so much clear up as it is clarify, add to, make better for the better people who listen to Craftlit. And so in effort to do that, I have an email from Kathleen Rogers. Kathleen is a longtime friend of the show and listener and friend of mine and Defarge designer and all-around awesome, smart, fabulous person. She writes, Here's some of my thoughts on the anti-Irish cracks in North and South. Anti-Irish sentiment had a long history in Britain. It became especially rampant because of the quote-unquote stubborn Irish hanging on to Roman Catholicism, which was infuriating to the Protestant monarchs. If you go and look at 19th century sources, newspapers, editorial cartoons, treatises on ethnicity, you will see the Irish are routinely depicted as apes and monkeys, sometimes as pigs, referred to as an inferior race, dismissed as drunkards, and labeled white Negroes. You know the pattern? Dehumanize and destroy. Isn't history lovely? The time period of North and South was also the period of the Great Famine in Ireland, a direct result of British trade and agrarian policy. And it is quite understandable that the Irish would be welcomed by the owners as a desperate and cheap source of strike-breaking labor, and at the same time despised not only as knobsticks, but as subhuman troglodytes. The Great Famine is often depicted as the fault, quote-unquote, of the parenthetically included, stupid Irish, for only wanting to eat potatoes. But when you look at the British policies and the numbers of dead and dispersed as a percentage of the population, it really was a form of near genocide. Even the charitable efforts of some British organizations were tainted. If you renounced your religion, you could get the soup from a soup kitchen. Thus, the term super was an Irish term of derision. And that's S-O-U-P-E-R. On another note, regarding Mrs. Boucher, it is quite possible that the poor woman was suffering from postpartum depression, malnutrition, and exhaustion. She had six children under the age of eight. I find Gaskell's lack of sympathy toward her to be shocking. But if she considered her to be Irish, that would explain it. The Irish were viewed as lesser, other, and altogether lacking in what quote-unquote real people had in the way of moral fiber, moral feeling, or just plain morals. Down off my soapbox now, Kathleen. I was so glad that Kathleen sent this because, first off, her letters are always really good and important, but also, as soon as she said the thing about Mrs. Boucher, I started, you know, wheels in the brain started to turn, and I remembered what I read about her biography of Charlotte Bronte. Now, I know I talked about this a little bit back when we did Jane Eyre, 
but in case you weren't listening, and in case it's just been a year and a half and you don't remember, Elizabeth Gaskell wrote the, not just at the time, but even today, uber biography of Charlotte Bronte. I mean, going back into her family history and friends and brother and sister and all this stuff, but Gaskell was also the source of a lot of misinformation. And it was really interesting because the woman who wrote the tome that I read last year when I was working on, on Jane Eyre, where she, she went back and she found things that nobody had found before and she found letters and diaries and pieced together some really important facts about the Bronte family in general, Charlotte Bronte and her relationship with her siblings and her father, and especially about the father, so I don't know if you've heard all these things, but I certainly grew up believing that Charlotte Bunchy's brother was a drunk and her father was abusive and like never let them eat meat. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. It all goes back to Gaskell. And it turns out that Gaskell actually had access to quite a few things that this more modern researcher had access to a couple of years back. But Gaskell had never written a biography before. And you can imagine when you're trying to piece together someone's life to make meaning out of it, you know, to make a, a, a linear story, to make a, a, a character arc out of a person's real life. That's kind of a tricky thing to do. And if you compound that by the fact that the Bronte family had 400 million thousand bazillion pieces of paper that they had written on, in sub-five-point font with a quill pen, you had a kind of daunting prospect ahead of you. And so I think what happened, at least in part, was that Gaskell went into the process of writing this biography kind of with some parts of her mind already made up. And then she found Charlotte's only real friend from outside of the family, a woman who she had gone to school with, and a woman who was not real thrilled with Charlotte getting married so late in life, you know, in her 30s, because her friend never got married. And so I think there was a little a little spite and malice going on there. But either way, this woman, Charlotte's oldest friend, latched on to Gaskell and promoted herself as the source of Bronte accuracy. Well, between the two of them, it didn't look good for the Brontes, because what do you do when you are a young thing or even a 20-something thing, and you're hanging out with a friend, you complain about your parents. Oh, and then they made me do the dishes. Oh, that's so unfair. I know. You know, I mean, it's, you say ridiculous stuff. And so for better or worse, your friends will wind up getting kind of a, a one-sided vision of your life, which is kind of what happened. Gaskell did have an opportunity to go to the parsonage in Haworth and meet Mr. Bronte, I think on two occasions. And actually, Charlotte's husband was still living there at the time. He was also a parson. And you know, these men are still grieving. And Gaskell comes in, and every mm, version, there aren't many, of the story is that she was kind of cold. And she is not described that way when she is out and about in society or traveling or writing letters to people or her children. But with Mr. Bronte, she was kind of, mm, three guesses where Mr. Bronte was from. Right. Ireland. So when I got Kathleen's email, and we were writing back and forth, and, and there was a follow-up email where she said it would be really interesting to, to have the 
the actual book, the text in front of you, to see if you could trace, is this Elizabeth Gaskell writing a character who is anti-Irish, but Gaskell herself isn't? Or is this Gaskell's attitude bleeding through? I am pretty firmly on the side of Gaskell having a bias that's just bleeding through. If I hadn't remembered that about Bronte, I may not have gone there, but now I'm, I'm pretty... She's a product of her time, and she's a product of her location. And we can't ask these people to be any better than what they were capable of being. I think she is remarkably open-minded and wide-viewing of so many things. It makes it hard when there's one big glaring problem in the middle of it, and you, you know, you, you just want her to be better than she was. At least I do, because it's frustrating. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that she didn't have a deep and abiding love for the Irish. She was not swayed by their charms. <sighs> so, the other thing I wanted to share with you before we get into words and funky things that happen in the chapter is there is the subject of confinement. Cousin Edith is pregnant, and that means at some point she is going to quote-unquote enter her confinement. I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to try and find details, reputable details, about women's topics from back in the day. Sometimes it is just almost impossible. So today, after spending the last 24 hours trying to find any kind of detail on women in the Victorian era and the act of confinement around childbirth, I finally gave up and I wrote to our Victorian scholar. And Larry wrote back, I found a source that says that the period was about two weeks, depending on circumstances. Of course, only wealthy women had the advantage, if it was such, of a period of confinement. One of the interesting things that I did find about confinement that was repeated over and over and over again, that this, this act of keeping the woman protected for the last two or three weeks of pregnancy in some eras went so far as to like close all the windows, close all the curtains, make sure that no outside air could get in to make sure that no sunlight got in. And they're just supposed to lie there on the bed. And I can't think of anything that would make me crazier or more depressed faster than that. On top of the fact that you're about to go into labor. So I don't know. I don't know. This is all I've been able to find. But either way, Edith is heading into her period of confinement. And that is going to affect our narrative, at least a little bit today. Last week was a bit of a surprise. Or not. I don't know if you saw that coming or not. I think I was pretty surprised the first time I read it. Because Mr. Hale kind of always seemed wimpy, maybe? But not on death's door. I mean, he moaned a bit, sure. But I didn't really think he was, you know, dying or anything like that. So that was a bit of a shock. Certainly a shock to Margaret. She didn't see it coming either. So I guess I'm in good company. And this week we have whole bunches of interesting things happening. If you did see Mr. Hale's death coming, I give you mad props, yo. <laughs> but there's some interesting stuff coming this week, and... I would be surprised to know if you saw it coming, because I don't, I am fairly certain I did not. I was very happy when it finally showed up, 
but I don't think I was expecting it. So when this episode is over, please feel free to come and put some comments in the show notes or call the phone number 1206-350-1642 and let me know what you thought about today's revelations. A listener sent me a really cool link to a St. Francis de Sales blog post. (laughs) Not that the saint made the blog post. It's on a blog post called The Bearing Blog, and it's St. Francis de Sales, patron saint of to-do lists, question mark, which I think is a perfectly reasonable question to ask and a perfectly reasonable thing to assign to a saint. (laughs) Makes me like the man all the much more. Because he seems to know that if there is anything, at least that I could use support, spiritual support with, it's it's the making of to-do lists and being forgiving of oneself when one doesn't manage to complete everything on one's to-do list. And actually, that, that seems to be kind of what he's talking about. The blogger is writing about how she was looking at a short work of his which was called the spiritual directory. She goes on to say, it's sort of a rule of life for the religious people he supervised. Only instead of specifying so many hours of work, so many hours of sleep, so many hours of prayer, et cetera, et cetera, he specifies little acts of devotion and intention to be performed throughout the day, connected to rising, to worship, to work, to meals, to bedtime, the whole cycle of an ordinary day. It is true that the directory proposes many exercises, Francis writes. Yet it is good and fitting to keep one's interior orderly and busy in the beginning. When, however, after a period of time, persons have put into practice somewhat this multiplicity of interior actions, have become formed and habituated to them and spiritually agile in their use, then the practices should coalesce into a single exercise of greater simplicity, either into a love of complacency or a love of benevolence or a love of confidence or of union and reunion of the heart to the will of God. This multiplicity thus becomes unity. And I thought, oh, okay, this is his approach to everything. And that idea of just doing, and the act of doing eventually brings about this relationship with yourself kind of this calm and forgiving relationship with yourself and also a relationship with something outside of yourself, something bigger, God or nature or however you look at the thing that is bigger than yourself in your life. And I thought, oh, okay, this makes sense now. This makes sense with Margaret and what Margaret needs. And the blogger goes on after that, but I thought that opening part, I went, oh, okay, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And it was also interesting because that's kind of a Jewish approach to prayer as well. Jewish prayers, if you've ever seen a Jewish service or anything, you've you've seen the Baruch Adonai, the beginning of each prayer, starts with the blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, creator of, you know, it goes on from there, creator of the fruit of the vine, creator of the Haaretz, the, the food of the earth. There are these prayers that are commonly said in synagogue, but then there's this whole panoply of prayers for absolutely everything else. This is one of the differences between reform and conservative and orthodox. The more orthodox you are, the more prayers you wind up saying. (laughs) That's not the only difference. 
But, I mean, there's no joke. There's a prayer for when you see a rainbow. There's actually a prayer. And in some ways, that sounds like a very limiting and unspontaneous way to live life. And I suppose that that, that could be true if that's how, how you uh, approached it. On the other hand, when there's a starting point given to you, start with this prayer, and then a reminder, oh, this thing that's happening right now, this is something you should be thankful for. It, it puts you in a, a different mindset. So if you, if you approach it as it's a rule and I have to do it and it's driving me nuts, then, then yeah, you're kind of missing the point. But if instead you look at it as, not you, but, you know, people, a person involved in that faith, if it's looked upon as a, an opportunity, a reminder, a practice that eventually coalesces into a single exercise of greater simplicity. And it becomes an opportunity for that kind of complacency. It's, I think it's the same thing with the Sabbath. You know, in the beginning, if you take up that attitude that on the Sabbath, whatever Sabbath you celebrate, but that you take up the idea that the Sabbath is going to be a day of not working. At first, that's going to be challenging and difficult. But when it becomes just another act of devotion, devotion to letting yourself just be. And this is part of the cognitive anchoring talk, this, this idea that we all need that kind of opportunity to just be. Then it starts to, to fit and it starts to make more sense. And it also starts to make a lot more sense that that is something that Margaret would have been drawn to, I think, is some kind of calm center in an otherwise really out of control and painful world that she's been part of for so long at this point. And actually, now that I start to think of it, this really is appropriate for, for this whole chapter because that calm center, finding that calm center, creating a calm center through your actions happens a couple times in this chapter in very, very different ways. Isn't that lovely when everything dovetails like that? There are a few things about this chapter to know, and then there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about at the end. But one of the first things that is going to jump out at you, especially if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, is the title of this week's chapter, which is Alone, Alone. If you hearken back <laughs> to the rhyme of the ancient mariner, Coleridge's poem, which we did a thousand years ago on Craftlet, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on the wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. I, I actually went back and listened to part of that particular podcast, and I said something that <laughs> I still agree with, which I suppose is a good thing. And that is that Coleridge's poem, I love reading this poem, but reading it out loud, it doesn't, in our, in our modern world, and perhaps it's and in my American voice, it doesn't scan well for reading out loud, which is so odd to me. Because again, it's a poem I love. It's strange, it's weird, it's whacked out, and I think also beautiful and multi-layered. But yeah, hard to read aloud well. So anyway, 
I have linked to, uh, actually to both the St. Francis de Sales blog post that I referred to, and also the Craftlet episode that refers to Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The other thing that happens at the beginning of this is there's a poem, which I've also linked to in the show notes. It's an Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem. Lots of Browning, very popular at the time. And this one is called Substitution, and it is actually about, it's about what one goes through when one experiences the sudden death of someone that one loves. So kind of appropriate. Mm -hmm. You will hear Mr. Bell referred to as a resident fellow. He's at Oxford. Uh, A fellow is, as far as my understanding and memory goes, the fellows are like the professors. A resident fellow would be someone who lives within the confines of the university that they teach at. So at Balliol, there was the main quad where all the kids hung out and where the, where the buttery was and, and where the dining hall was and the uh, commons rooms and the residential rooms. But prior to that, when you entered the gates of the college, there was a smaller quad, a much more attractive quad, and the rooms that circled that area or squared around that rectangled around that area, were the dawn halls. That was where the professors would live. If you saw Brideshead Revisited, or if you read uh, Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night, hmm, pulled that out of 25 years ago, then you, you either watched or read about the people living in these places, these residents at Oxford, or at a university that was part of the larger Oxford University. So, Mr. Bell is a resident fellow. He may still teach from time to time, or he may be kind of an emeritus dude where he's just there and functioning kind of as as an advisor to other professors and to students as well. The word contumelies, we do not use this word very often. Contumelies would be insults. I'm not going to tell you who's feeling insulted, (laughs) but I bet you can guess. You'll hear a reference to a hot pot for dinner. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a it's a stew that was made in one pot and was hot. <laughs> and that is everything, I think. And now I'm going to turn you loose on chapter 42. Alone, alone. North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 42 Alone, alone When some beloved voice that was to you both sound and sweetness faileth suddenly, and silence, against which you dare not cry, aches round you like a strong disease and new, what hope, what help? What music will undo that silence to your sense? Mrs. Browning The shock had been great. Margaret fell into a state of prostration, which did not show itself in sobs and tears, or even find the relief of words. She lay on the sofa, with her eyes shut, never speaking but when spoken to, and then replying in whispers, Mr. Bell was perplexed. He dared not leave her. He dared not ask her to accompany him back to Oxford, 
which had been one of the plans he had formed on the journey to Milton. Her physical exhaustion was evidently too complete for her to undertake any such fatigue, putting the sight that she would have to encounter out of the question. Mr. Bell sat over the fire, considering what he had better do. Margaret lay motionless and almost breathless by him. He would not leave her, even for the dinner which Dixon had prepared for him downstairs, and, with sobbing hospitality, would fain have tempted him to eat. He had a plateful of something brought up to him. In general, he was particular and dainty enough, and knew well each shade of flavor in his food. But now, the devil chicken tasted like sawdust. He minced up some of the fowl for Margaret and peppered and salted it well, but when Dixon, following his directions, tried to feed her, the languid shake of head proved that in such a state as Margaret was in, food would only choke, not nourish her. Mr. Bell gave a great sigh, lifted up his stout old limbs, stiff with traveling, from their easy position, and followed Dixon out of the room. I can't leave her. I must write to them at Oxford to see that the preparations are made. They can be getting on with these till I arrive. Can't Mrs. Lennox come to her? I'll write and tell her she must. The girl must have some woman friend about her, if only to talk her into a good fit of crying. Dixon was crying, enough for two, but... After wiping her eyes and steadying her voice, she managed to tell Mr. Bell that Mrs. Lennox was too near her confinement to be able to undertake any journey at present. Well, I suppose we must have Mrs. Shaw. She's come back to England, isn't she? Yes, sir, she's come back, but I don't think she will like to leave Mrs. Lennox at such an interesting time said Dixon, who did not much approve of a stranger entering the household to share with her in her ruling care of Margaret. Interesting time be— Mr. Bell restricted himself to coughing over the end of his sentence. She could be content to be at Venice or Naples or some of those popish places at the last interesting time, which took place in Corfu, I think— and what does that little prosperous woman's interesting time signify in comparison with that poor creature there, that helpless, homeless, friendless Margaret, lying as still on that sofa as if it were an altar tomb, and she the stone statue on it? I tell you, Mrs. Shaw shall come. See that a room or whatever she wants is got ready for her by tomorrow night. I'll take care she comes. Accordingly, Mr. Bell wrote a letter which Mrs. Shaw declared with many tears to be so like one of the dear generals when he was going to have a fit of the gout that she should always value and preserve it. If he had given her the option, by requesting or urging her as if a refusal were possible, she might not have come, true and sincere as was her sympathy with Margaret. It needed the sharp, uncourteous command to make her conquer her vis inertiae and allow herself to be packed by her maid after the latter had completed the boxes.
Edith, all cap, shawls, and tears, came out to the top of the stairs as Captain Lennox was taking her mother down to the carriage. Don't forget, Mama, Margaret must come and live with us. Sholto will go to Oxford on Wednesday, and you must send word by Mr. Bell to him when we're to expect you. And if you want Sholto, he can go on from Oxford to Milton. Don't forget, Mama, you are to bring back Margaret. Edith re-entered the drawing room. Mr. Henry Lennox was there, cutting open the pages of a new review. Without lifting his head, he said, If you don't like Sholto to be so long absent from you, Edith, I hope you will let me go down to Milton and give what assistance I can. Oh, thank you, said Edith. I dare say old Mr. Bell will do everything he can, and more help may not be needed. Only one does not look for much savoir-faire from a resident fellow. Dear, darling Margaret, won't it be nice to have her here again? You were both great allies years ago. Were we? asked he indifferently, with an appearance of being interested in a passage in the review. Well, perhaps not. I forget. I was so full of Sholto. But doesn't it fall out well that if my uncle was to die, it should be just now, when we are come home and settled in the old house and quite ready to receive Margaret? Poor thing. What a change it will be to her from Milton. I'll have new chintz for her bedroom and make it look new and bright and cheer her up a little. In the same spirit of kindness, Mrs. Shaw journeyed to Milton, occasionally dreading the first meeting and wondering how it would be got over, but more frequently planning how soon she could get Margaret away from that horrid place and back into the pleasant comforts of Harley Street. Oh, dear, she said to her maid, look at those chimneys, my poor sister Hale. I don't think I could have rested at Naples if I had known what it was. I must have come and fetched her and Margaret away. And to herself she acknowledged that she had always thought her brother-in-law rather a weak man, but never so weak as now, when she saw for what a place he had exchanged the lovely Helston home. Margaret had remained in the same state, white, motionless, speechless, tearless. They had told her that her Aunt Shaw was coming, but she had not expressed either surprise or pleasure or dislike to the idea. Mr. Bell, whose appetite had returned and who appreciated Dixon's endeavors to gratify it, in vain urged upon her to taste some sweetbread stewed with oysters. She shook her head with the same quiet obstinacy as on the previous day, and he was obliged to console himself for her rejection by eating them all himself. But Margaret was the first to hear the stopping of the cab that brought her aunt from the railway station. Her eyelids quivered, her lips colored and trembled. Mr. Bell went down to meet Mrs. Shaw, and when they came up, Margaret was standing, trying to steady her dizzy self. And when she saw her aunt, she went forward to the arms open to receive her, and first found the passionate relief of tears on her aunt's shoulder. All thoughts of quiet, habitual love, of tenderness for years, of relationship to the dead, all that inexplicable likeness in look, 
tone and gesture that seemed to belong to one family and which reminded Margaret so forcibly at this moment of her mother came in to melt and soften her numbed heart into the overflow of warm tears. Mr. Bell stole out of the room and went down into the study, where he ordered a fire and tried to divert his thoughts by taking down and examining the different books. Each volume brought a remembrance or a suggestion of his dead friend. It might be a change of employment from his two days' work of watching Margaret, but it was no change of thought. He was glad to catch the sound of Mr. Thornton's voice making enquiry at the door. Dixon was rather cavalierly dismissing him, for with the appearance of Mrs. Shaw's maid came visions of former grandeur, of the Beresford blood, of the station, so she was pleased to term it, from which her young lady had been ousted, and to which she was now, please God, to be restored. These visions, which she had been dwelling on with complacency in her conversation with Mrs. Shaw's maid, skillfully eliciting, meanwhile, all the circumstances of state and consequence connected with the Harley Street establishment for the edification of the listening Martha, made Dixon rather inclined to be supercilious in her treatment of any inhabitant of Milton. So, though she always stood rather in awe of Mr. Thornton, she was as curt as she durst be in telling him that he could see none of the inmates of the house that night. It was rather uncomfortable to be contradicted in her statement by Mr. Bell's opening the study door and calling out, Thornton, is that you? Come in for a minute or two. I want to speak to you. So Mr. Thornton went into the study, and Dixon had to retreat into the kitchen and reinstate herself in her own esteem by a prodigious story of Sir John Beresford's coach and six when he was high sheriff. I don't know what I wanted to say to you after all. Only, it's dull enough to sit in a room where everything speaks to you of a dead friend. Yet Margaret and her aunt must have the drawing room to themselves. Is Mrs. Is her aunt come? asked Mr. Thornton. Come? Yes, maid and all. One would have thought she might have come by herself at such a time. And now I shall have to turn out and find my way to the Clarendon. You must not go to the Clarendon. We have five or six empty bedrooms at home. Well, Ed? I think you may trust my mother for that. Then I'll only run upstairs and wish that wan girl good night and make my bow to her aunt and go off with you straight. Mr. Bell was some time upstairs. Mr. Thornton began to think it long, for he was full of business and had hardly been able to spare the time for running up to Crampton and inquiring how Miss Hale was. When they had set out upon their walk, Mr. Bell said, I was kept by those women in the drawing room. Mrs. Shaw is anxious to get home on account of her daughter, she says, and wants Margaret to go off with her at once. Now, she is no more fit for travelling than I am for flying. Besides, she says, and very justly, that she has friends she must see, that she must wish goodbye to several people, and then her aunt worried her about old claims, and was she forgetful of old friends? And she said, with a great burst of crying, she should be glad enough to go from a place where she had suffered so much. 
Now I must return to Oxford tomorrow, and I don't know on which side of the scale to throw in my voice. He paused as if asking a question, but he received no answer from his companion, the echo of whose thoughts kept repeating. Where she had suffered so much. Alas, and that was the way in which this eighteen months in Milton, to him so unspeakably precious, down to its very bitterness, which was worth all the rest of life's sweetness, would be remembered. Neither loss of father nor loss of mother, dear as she was to Mr. Thornton, could have poisoned the remembrance of the weeks, the days, the hours, when a walk of two miles, every step of which was pleasant as it brought him nearer and nearer to her, took him to her sweet presence, every step of which was rich, as each recurring moment that bore him away from her made him recall some fresh grace in her demeanor or pleasant pungency in her character. Yes, whatever had happened to him external to his relation to her, he could never have spoken of that time when he could have seen her every day, when he had her within his grasp, as it were, as a time of suffering. It had been a royal time of luxury to him, with all its stings and contumelies, compared to the poverty that crept round and clipped the anticipation of the future down to sordid fact and life without an atmosphere of either hope or fear. Mrs. Thornton and Fanny were in the dining room, the latter in a flutter of small exultation as the maid held up one glossy material after another to try the effect of the wedding dresses by candlelight. Her mother really tried to sympathize with her, but could not. Neither taste nor dress were in her line of subjects, and she heartily wished that Fanny had accepted her brother's offer of having the wedding clothes provided by some first-rate London dressmaker without the endless troublesome discussions and unsettled wavering that arose out of Fanny's desire to choose and superintend everything herself. Mr. Thornton was only too glad to mark his grateful approbation of any sensible man who could be captivated by Fanny's second-rate airs and graces by giving her ample means for providing herself with the finery which certainly rivaled, if it did not exceed, the lover in her estimation. When her brother and Mr. Bell came in, Fanny blushed and simpered and fluttered over the signs of her employment— in a way which could not have failed to draw attention from anyone else but Mr. Bell. If he thought about her and her silks and satins at all, it was to compare her and them with the pale sorrow he had left behind him, sitting motionless, with bent head and folded hands, in a room where the stillness was so great that you might almost fancy the rush in your straining ears was occasioned by the spirits of the dead yet hovering round their beloved. For when Mr. Bell had first gone upstairs, Mrs. Shaw lay asleep on the sofa, and no sound broke the silence. Mrs. Thornton gave Mr. Bell her formal, hospitable welcome. She was never so gracious as when receiving her son's friends in her son's house, and the more unexpected they were, the more honor to her admirable housekeeping preparations for comfort. How is Miss Ale? she asked. "'about as broken down by this last stroke as she can be. 
I'm sure it is very well for her that she has such a friend as you. I wish I were her only friend, madam. I dare say it sounds very brutal, but here I have been displaced and turned out of my post of comforter and adviser by a fine lady aunt, and there are cousins and what not claiming her in London as if she were a lapdog belonging to them, and she is too weak and miserable to have a will of her own. She must indeed be weak, said Mrs. Thornton, with an implied meaning which her son understood well. But where, continued Mrs. Thornton, have these relations been all this time that Miss Ale has appeared almost friendless and has certainly had a good deal of anxiety to bear? But she did not feel interest enough in the answer to her question to wait for it. She left the room to make her household arrangements. They have been living abroad, they have some kind of claim upon her. I will do them that justice. The aunt brought her up, and she and the cousin have been like sisters. The thing vexing me, you see, is that I wanted to take her for a child of my own, and I am jealous of these people who don't seem to value the privilege of their right. Now, it would be different if Frederick claimed her. Frederick, exclaimed Mr. Thornton. Who is he? What right? He stopped short in his vehement question. Frederick, said Mr. Bell in surprise. Why, don't you know? He's her brother. Have you not heard? I never heard his name before. Where is he? Who is he? Surely I told you about him when the family first came to Milton, the son who was concerned in that mutiny. I never heard of him till this moment. Where does he live? In Spain. He's liable to be arrested the moment he sets foot on English ground. Poor fellow, he will grieve at not being able to attend his father's funeral. We must be content with Captain Lennox, for I don't know of any other relation to summon. I uh, hope I may be allowed to go. Certainly, thankfully. You're a good fellow after all, Thornton. Hale liked you. He spoke to me only the other day about you at Oxford. He regretted he had seen so little of you lately. I am obliged to you for wishing to show him respect. But about Frederick, does he never come to England? Never. He was not over here about the time of Mrs. Ayle's death. No, why, I was here then. I hadn't seen Hale for years and years, and if you remember, I came. No, it was some time after that that I came. But poor Frederick Hale was not here then. What made you think he was? I saw a young man walking with Miss Hale one day, replied Mr. Thornton. And I think it was about that time. Oh, that would be this young Lennox, the captain's brother. He's a lawyer, and they were in pretty constant correspondence with him, and... I remember Mr. Hale told me he thought he would come down. Do you know, said Mr. Bell, wheeling around and shutting one eye, the better to bring the forces of the other to bear with keen scrutiny on Mr. Thornton's face, that I once fancied you had a little tenderness for Margaret? No answer, no change of countenance. And so did poor Hale, not at first, and not till I had put it into his head. I admired Miss Ale, 
Everyone must do so. She is a beautiful creature, said Mr. Thornton, driven to bay by Mr. Bell's pertinacious questioning. Is that all? You can speak of her in that measured way as simply a beautiful creature, only something to catch the eye. I did hope you had nobleness enough in you to make you pay her the homage of the heart, though I believe, in fact I know, she would have rejected you. Still, to have loved her without return would have lifted you higher than all those, be they who they may, that have never known her to love. Beautiful creature, indeed. Do you speak of her as you would of a horse or a dog? Mr. Thornton's eyes glowed like red embers. Mr. Bell, said he, before you speak so, you should remember that all men are not as free to express what they feel as you are. Let us talk of something else. For though his heart leapt up as at a trumpet call to every word that Mr. Bell had said, and though he knew that what he had said would henceforward bind the thought of the old Oxford fellow closely up with the most precious things of his heart, yet he would not be forced into any expression of what he felt towards Margaret. He was no mockingbird of praise to try because another extolled what he reverenced and passionately loved to outdo him in laudation. So, he turned to some of the dry matters of business that lay between Mr. Bell and him as landlord and tenant. What is that heap of brick and mortar we came against in the yard? Any repairs wanted? No, none, thank you. Are you building on your own account? If you are, I'm very much obliged to you. I'm building a dining room for the men, I mean, the Anns. I thought you were hard to please if this room wasn't good enough to satisfy you, a bachelor. I've got acquainted with a strange kind of chap, and I put one or two children in whom he is interested to school. So, as I happened to be passing near his house one day, I just went there about some trifling payment to be made, and I saw such a miserable black frizzle of a dinner, a greasy cinder of meat, as first set me a-thinking. It was not till provisions grew so high this winter that I bethought me how, by buying things wholesale and cooking a good quantity of provisions together, much money might be saved and much comfort gained. So I spoke to my friend, or my enemy, the man I told you of, and he found fault with every detail of my plan, and in consequence I laid it aside both as impracticable and also because if I forced it into operation, I should be interfering with the independence of my men, when, suddenly, this Higgins came to me and graciously signified his approval of a scheme so nearly the same as mine that I might fairly have claimed it, and, moreover, the approval of several of his fellow workmen to whom he had spoken. I was a little riled, I confess, by his manner, and thought of throwing the whole thing overboard to sink or swim. But it seemed childish to relinquish a plan which I had once thought wise and well laid, just because I myself did not receive all the honor and consequence due to the originator. So I coolly took the part assigned to me, which is something like that of a steward to a club. I buy in the provisions wholesale and provide a fitting matron or cook. I hope you give satisfaction in your new capacity. 
Are you a good judge of potatoes and onions? But I suppose Mrs. Thornton assists you in your marketing. Not a bit, replied Mr. Thornton. She disapproves of the whole plan, and now we never mention it to each other. But I manage pretty well, getting in great stocks from Liverpool and being served in butcher's meat by our own family butcher. I can assure you, the hot dinners the matron turns out are by no means to be despised. Do you taste each dish as it goes in, in virtue of your office? I hope you have a white wand. I was very scrupulous at first in confining myself to the mere purchasing part, and even in that I rather obeyed the men's orders conveyed through the housekeeper than went by my own judgment. At one time the beef was too large, at another the mutton was not fat enough. I think they saw how careful I was to leave them free and not to intrude my own ideas upon them, so one day two or three of the men... My friend Diggins among them asked me if I would not come in and take a snack. It was a very busy day, but I saw that the men would be hurt if after making the advance I didn't meet them halfway. So I went in, and I never made a better dinner in my life. I told them, my next neighbors I mean, for I'm no speechmaker, how much I had enjoyed it, and for some time, whenever that especial dinner recurred in their dietary, I was sure to be met by these men with a, Master, there's hot pot for dinner today when you come. If they had not asked me, I would no more have intruded on them than I'd have gone to the mess at the barracks without invitation. I should think you were rather a restraint on your host's conversation. They can't abuse the masters while you're there. I suspect they take it out on non-hot pot days. Well... Hitherto we've steered clear of all vexed questions, but if any of the old disputes came up again, I would certainly speak out my mind next hot-pot day. But you are hardly acquainted with our Darkshire fellows, for all you're a Darkshire man yourself. They have such a sense of humour and such a racy mode of expression. I'm getting really to know some of them now, and they talk pretty freely before me. Nothing like the act of eating for equalizing men. Dying is nothing to it. The philosopher dies sententiously, the Pharisee ostentatiously, the simple-hearted humbly, the poor idiot blindly, as the sparrow falls to the ground. The philosopher and idiot, publican and Pharisee, all eat after the same fashion, given an equally good digestion. There's theory for theory for you. Indeed, I have no theory. I hate theories. I beg your pardon. To show my penitence, will you accept a ten-pound note towards your marketing and give the poor fellows a feast? Thank you, but I'd rather not. They pay me rent for the oven and cooking places at the back of the mill, and will have to pay more for the new dining room. I don't want it to fall into a charity. I don't want donations. Once let in the principle, and I should have people going and talking and spoiling the simplicity of the old thing. People will talk about any new plan. You can't help that. My enemies, if I have any, may make a philanthropic fuss about this dinner scheme. But you are a friend, and I expect you will pay my experiment the respect to silence. 
It is but a new broom at present, and sweeps clean enough. But by and by, we shall meet with plenty of stumbling blocks, no doubt. Okay, right? So that was a ton of stuff. Aunt Shaw is here. She's going to take Margaret back. Margaret has said that she had a miserable time the whole time she was in Milton, and now Thornton is heartbroken. Fanny continues to be a twit, although it cracked me up. Because in this case, I am absolutely a thousand percent with Mrs. Thornton. I would have been so bored watching Fanny go through all those clothes. I'm not a shopper. Bell? Bell and the way he talked to Thornton about love? Did he scream? I am a bachelor and don't know what I'm talking about. Holy cow. That just... I, I thought, wow, you're really... You're trying to hurt this man. That's just... That's not nice. <sighs> and did you pick up on Bell's attitude towards Aunt Shaw? It made me think, I, I wonder what Mr. Hale was saying about Aunt Shaw to Mr. Bell. Because how else would Bell have had any kind of an opinion on Aunt Shaw except through Mr. Hale? I don't know. I might be projecting, but I kind of think that the way that women have stitch and bitch sessions, the men must have their own variety of it. And Shaw was a topic of conversation for these two men. And then there was one obscure comment, and I have been trying to find the fact behind it. And it's kind of driving me nuts. When Edith went in to talk to Henry Lennox, he was cutting apart the pages of his journal. Now, I know that this has something to do with the way things were printed and folded, that you had to slice the pages to open them. But I cannot, for the life of me, find or remember how, why, and what. So if anybody has that information, please call in 1206-350-1642. Don't forget, I will be at Stitches East Thursday night for Franklin's Talk. Thank you all who went and voted for the South by Southwest. We still haven't heard yet. Fingers are crossed. And if you have friends who look at you strangely when you tell them that you listen to this podcast, the video that we have over at the Suppable page and the explanation that's there might help a little bit. We also, I haven't made a big deal about this, but I've been updating and then Vanessa has helped me enormously to update my YouTube feed. We are now posting Craftlit episodes on YouTube as well because for some smart devices, YouTube works better than anything else, except the app. Everybody's saying the app. The app has had some really wonky things happen lately, but that's because they're going through and they're updating all of the apps to like 2.0. And as that process happens, their servers get wonky and, you know, it's a troubleshooting thing. So if something goes wrong with your app, tap the little at sign, go to troubleshooting, send them the log. If something goes wonky with your app, and you can't tap on that thing, email me at that point, or try reinstalling the app, and then if it's still wonky, email me, heather at craftlit.com, and I'll help you. Thank you all of my knitters who knit me the fabulous quilt last year. It is on the bed and gorgeous, and there's a picture of it on the show notes. 
And I would like to send a huge thank you to all of the people who showed up at the online chat for Bleak House. It was a good test run. It was a success. We could hear each other sometimes. We could always see what each other were typing. And and it, I think it, as a platform, it's actually going to work. And it's free. So the site is Vocal, V-O-K-L-E. And we will have a North and South discussion there when we're done with this book. So there we are. Don't forget to visit subbable.com. If you haven't subscribed to Craftlet any other way, that gives you an opportunity to subscribe to the show in a way that helps the show out. You don't have to pay anything if you don't want to, but just staying on that site, being visible, being present, and if you see a perk pop up that you really want and you want to put some money towards it, you can. Certainly don't have to have all the money all at once. Every dollar you put in is banked for your future use. And there it is. I did get one announcement in at the 11th hour. This comes from online friend Varian, who is running the Canuga Knitting and Quilting Retreat. This runs from January 15th to January 18th. It's in North Carolina. The link is in the show notes, and it looks gorgeous. Knitting and quilting. That, uh, that applies to some of you, I know. So, there it is. All right, have a great week. We have another fantastic chapter for you next week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook. Or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 smartphone and tablet apps. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium streaming content on the go. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>